In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand, or your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see, and having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, please, and ask God to help us as we try to understand this part of his word. Father, we come now again and ask for you to graciously be at work in our midst. Father, these words that record what Jesus did and said many centuries ago now, might seem to be very distant to the problems we are facing in our lives. And so we pray that you would connect the world of the Scripture with our worlds now, and that you would do it by your power and by your grace. We ask that you would help us to move from an understanding of Jesus that is muddled and unclear to an understanding of him that is full of clarity and light. Will you do that this morning, please, by your grace and mercy? We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's been a series of commercials recently uh, that Verizon, the telephone provider, has put out where they have a guy show up in you know, a crowded intersection or in some far-off place with a phone, and he says, anybody know what, it, what he says? Good. Do you hear me now? Do you hear me now? Good. 
Do you hear me now? Good. The point being that Verizon's wireless network extends further out than any other wireless network. In a sense, in our story this morning, in actually the multiple little stories and little interactions that we read about Jesus having with his disciples and with his enemies, he is asking us again and again, do you hear me? Do you hear me now? Do you see me now? Are you beginning to understand? Are you beginning to perceive who I am and what I came to do? Mark chapter 8, which is where we begin our story this morning, is really kind of a turning point chapter, a crucial chapter in the gospel. It uh, is the place where Jesus really begins to talk to his disciples about his death. That's going to come next time we look at the gospel of Mark. The conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders of his day is heightened and intensified. And also, very importantly for our purposes this morning, Jesus' own followers... The disciples are forced to really begin to come to terms with, to come to grips with who Jesus is and what following Jesus is going to actually require of them. Really, our story today, the stories today, there's really four small different stories that Mark here combines to make one sort of overarching narrative point. And that point is this. The disciples, Jesus' closest associates and friends, do not yet grasp who he is. They don't yet understand him. They don't hear him. They don't see him clearly. Now, this theme has been building as we've made our way through Mark, and it will continue to come to a head in the next few chapters. Back in chapter 4, for example, we saw that the disciples didn't grasp the parables that Jesus spoke, and they needed his clarification. They didn't understand. We saw that they have a little, a very little concept of Jesus' ability to provide for them in the midst of the storm. Remember when Jesus calms the storm, they, he says, you have little faith. They don't know who he is. In chapter 5, they speak with him sort of sarcastically when he feeds the 5,000. They can't believe that he would be able to do such a thing. We've seen the disciples acting coldly and harshly towards the crowds when Jesus, on the other hand, has compassion on them. We've seen the disciples think that Jesus is going to abandon them in their deepest and darkest hour. We've seen the disciples having hardened hearts at the end of chapter 6. And in this chapter, the lack of spiritual insights, the lack of spiritual vision on the part of the disciples is sort of brought to the foreground. It's clear, as one scholar wrote, that repeated exposure, listen, repeated exposure to Jesus' teaching and mighty works has not led to reflection on their significance on the disciples' part, but to a basic insensitivity and dullness. Proximity to Jesus, closeness to Jesus, doesn't necessarily equal a clear understanding of Jesus. And we see that here with the disciples. And so what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is teaching his disciples many hundreds of years ago, and really, to be honest, what Jesus wants to teach you, And what Jesus wants to teach me this morning is is this. He wants to move us from a muddled understanding of who he is to a clear understanding of who he is. This morning, Jesus is asking you personally, do you see anything here? Can you hear him now? Are you understanding him rightly? 
really, you can summarize the main idea in this way. I've already kind of said it. Jesus helps us move from muddled understanding to clear understanding of who he is. If you take anything away, take that. Jesus helps us to move from muddled understanding to clear understanding of who he is. I've got three ideas, three points that I want to communicate that I think this text is teaching. But before we get to those, let me do a little bit more setup, okay? Jesus has done all these miracles in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And here in the first few verses of chapter 8, he's fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few scraps of fish. And the major point, again, is that no one really yet understands him. No one hears him or sees him rightly. And then at the end of our passage this morning, we see him heal this man in Bethsaida, this blind man. But he heals him in two stages. Did you notice that? That's weird. That's unique among Jesus' miracles. And it's not like Jesus sort of messed it up the first time. It's not like he, you know said the wrong magical healing formula the first time and had to have sort of a do-over, he's doing something intentional. And Mark is doing something intentional in placing that story where he places it. The first time Jesus lays his hands on this man, his, his sight is it's muddled. He says, I see men, but they look like trees walking around, right? And then Jesus has to put his hands on him again. And the second time he says, I can see clearly. Mark put that instance, that story, here at the end of these verses in order to present for you and for me a visual picture of what our hearts are often like. It's a visual reminder of the process that Jesus' disciples and Jesus' opponents are facing with him. The healing of this man is an illustration, a walking, living illustration that the clarity with which you understand Jesus oftentimes determines the quality of your life here and forever. Don't miss that. The clarity with which you understand Jesus often determines the quality of your life here and forever after. So let's look at those three ways that we are kind of like this blind man. We don't see clearly. Our understanding is muddled. And then three ways Jesus can make us clear in our sight. We are muddled because of unbelief first. Second, we're muddled because of pessimism. And third, we're muddled because of forgetfulness. Muddled because of unbelief, pessimism, and forgetfulness. Okay, so let's jump into this and move through these. The first part of our story shows us that oftentimes we are muddled because of unbelief. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 15. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, that word leaven is a metaphor for influence. He's saying, beware of the influence of the Pharisees and the influence of Herod. Now, what does that mean? Well, we can see what it means when we see that Jesus says right before this, right, right after he's had this interaction with the Pharisees in verses 11 and 12 and 13. They come to Jesus, we read, and Mark says they begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Okay, that is, they seem to still think that they need proof. They need incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is not just a prophet, but that Jesus is God himself. That Jesus has the authority to teach in the way he's taught and to speak in the way he speaks and to act in the way that he has acted. They are in a, I'll believe it when I see it, relationship with Jesus. They want him to do what some of the people of the Old Testament did. They want him to show that God was with him. They're saying, really, be like Elijah. Perform some amazing miracle. Be like Moses. Perform some amazing miracle. Be like Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. You know, let's be honest. Um, Even if they had received every sign in the world, 
they still would not have believed in him. Their intent here is not authentic. Their intent is calloused. Mark tells us that they came to ask a sign in order that they might test him. In order that they might test him. There's nothing in the world that's going to convince the Pharisees that Jesus is the Son of God come to save sinners. There's no way they can be persuaded. Let me put it this way. If you could invent a time machine and go back to the year 2000, when I was a student at Baylor University 15 years ago, and if you had come from the year 2015 and told me, in 15 years, Luke, the Baylor University football team will be ranked number three in the nation, back-to-back Big 12 champions, I would have never believed you. Like, I would, I would have given a million to one odds that that was possible. There is no chance you could have ever persuaded me that something like that could ever have happened. That is kind of how the Pharisees relate to Jesus and to Jesus' claims at this point. Jesus has given plenty of evidence. He's given plenty of signs that he is who he says he is, but they simply don't believe it. You see, the Pharisees are muddled in their understanding about Jesus. And they're muddled, they're unclear because of their unbelief. Because they simply refuse to recognize him for who he so clearly is. And so the question becomes, are you muddled in your understanding of Jesus because of your unbelief? Maybe you've heard information about Jesus You've heard from time to time the Bible taught and explained. You might have been exposed a little bit to church, to the people of Jesus. But for one reason or another, you simply refuse to believe in him. You refuse to believe what the scriptures say. Almost certainly, some of you here today might be in that position. And that can take all kinds of forms too, right? You might not have some massive intellectual or emotional quarrel with Christianity or with Jesus. You might be muddled in your understanding by unbelief simply because you just don't see how Jesus is relevant. You don't see how it has anything to do with your daily, normal, routine patterns, with your everyday life and relationships. It just doesn't seem that important. The church really seems to be just something that's talking about things that really have nothing to do with what most people face. There's a lot of people in that camp. And I want to tell you that in many ways that's a completely understandable position. And yet it is a position of unbelief. And so I want to just take one second to try to help you and maybe engage in a dialogue with you by, I guess, kind of going with an old school preacher question. Here's a question. What is really going to happen to you when you die? I mean, that's something that I think you would want to consider. I mean, it seems to be a fairly important question. What is after death? There was a great philosopher a couple of hundred years ago named Pascal who has a a famous statement that's been known as Pascal's Wager. And what Pascal says in Pascal's Wager is basically that either by believing in Christianity, you have a lot to lose if it's true. In other words, if Christianity is true and what Christianity says about the afterlife is true and you don't believe it, you have a lot to lose. But if Christianity is not true, if it's all just a hoax, or if, all, if it's all just for people that are emotionally weak, or if it's all just made up by the church as an institution, and you don't believe it, you have nothing to lose. But if it's true, it's something that should at least be considered, because it's of eternal consequence. And so he says, you should wager 
you should sort of hedge your bets and at least consider whether or not the claims of Jesus are valid, whether or not the claims of Jesus are relevant. Listen, you might not think Christianity or Jesus is relevant at all. You might not believe it. You might be muddled in your understanding because of unbelief. I would simply ask you this morning to consider some of the important questions in life. One of which is, what does happen after death? I believe that Christianity has a very persuasive and compelling answer to that question. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Our Christianity Explored class, by the way, starting on Tuesday, answers these exact sort of questions. We want a dialogue about these exact sort of questions. I guess what I'm asking is for you to just not pass by the message and the person of Jesus, to not take him lightly, to not simply make it a low priority because you deem it to be irrelevant, but to give it some real attention in your heart and in your mind. Don't let unbelief muddle your understanding about who Jesus really is. Second, we can be muddled by unbelief. First, second, we can be muddled by pessimism. I'm going to mess that up a lot. Pessimism pessimism, okay? Let's look at what the disciples do with Jesus. We've seen his interaction with his opponents, the Pharisees, but now we see in the rest of the story, really, Jesus's actions and attitudes as it relates to his disciples. What happens happens with them there? Look in verse 14. And I think, by the way, Mark intends this to be somewhat humorous. Look at what Mark says. They intended to, they get in the boat and they forgot to bring bread. So the disciples have forgotten to bring bread right after Jesus has created a meal for 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Right after Jesus has a few days earlier fed 5,000 people plus with five loaves of bread. Mark's intending to say it's kind of funny that Jesus has just created bread out of nothing. You know, He's fed a huge multitude and there's been seven baskets left over and then the disciples forget it. And so the disciples forget the bread, they get on the boat... And they start arguing with one another. That's the underlying message of that word there in verse 16 where he says, they begin discussing. That's a very nice way to put. They were bickering. They were arguing. They were fighting. I mean, imagine how that conversation must have gone. Peter looks around and he looks at James. James, where's the bread? And James says, Peter, I brought the extra tunic. You are supposed to bring the bread. No, no, no. The other Peter was supposed to bring the bed. Simon the zealot, he was supposed to bring the bread. How could we forget the bread? Jesus is going to be so disappointed with us. And then John looks up and says, you know, you're right. We're pretty important. We've got a big job. We're Jesus' disciples. And we can't even get the basic details taken care of. We forget bread. What are we going to do? So they not only argue with themselves... They also think that Jesus is going to be upset with them. They think that he's going to be disappointed. And Jesus is aware of this, and that's why he addresses them with these questions that he addresses them with in chapter 16. You know, they're super frustrated. They're frustrated that they forgot something. And that happens to me all the time. Just yesterday, on the way to the Intro to Christ Church class, I'm like 80% of the way there, and I realize I forgot the DVDs for the kids. Man! So I have to turn around, go all the way back home, saying words that I'm not going to repeat here, phrases that I'm not going to repeat here to myself on the way home to get the DVD. I was frustrated. That's how the disciples feel. They're frustrated. And here's the point. In their frustration, in their bickering, their real views about what God is like come out. In their frustration and arguing, their real thoughts about Jesus come out. When things get rough, your true view of what God is like is revealed. 
And for the disciples, it's quite a pessimistic one. I wonder how many of you view God in the same way as the disciples viewed Jesus in this instance. Is your understanding muddled in the same way? You know, how many of you are pessimists when it comes to your thinking about God? How many of you are glass half empty theologians? Some of us are, at least in our worst moments. You know, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. We think, I have to do this or that, or perform my religious duties, or make sure I observe the things I'm supposed to observe spiritually just to sort of keep God's anger at bay, to keep him from sort of jumping on me. We think about God the way I used to think about my high school basketball coach. When we were in the weight room, we would do the bare minimum that was required. And the only reason we would do it is so that our coach wouldn't jump down our throats and yell at us. That's oftentimes the way we view God. We're very pessimistic in our relationship with him. We, we know we're pessimistic in our relationship with God when we don't really expect joy or hope or love or peace to be forged inside of us. Rather, our Christian walk is really just intended to be sort of a rabbit's foot, you know. You do it so that nothing too bad will happen to you. But you don't have any great expectations of God. You're pessimistic, and so you're unhappy, and you're uneasy, and you're troubled of spirit most of the time. Jesus wants to clear up your muddled hearts and heads by showing you what he's really like. We can be muddled by unbelief. We can be muddled by pessimism. And then thirdly, Finally, we can be muddled by forgetfulness. Look at what happens in 17. The disciples are also muddled because of forgetfulness. Jesus responds to their pessimistic bickering and arguing there in 17 by saying, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? You're interpreting this way too literally, right? Do you not yet perceive or understand? And then he goes on to ask this piercing series of questions of them. And it's summed up there in 21 when he says, Do you not yet understand? He's like the Verizon guy again. Can you hear me now? Can you see me now? Do you understand? And then he asks them these specifics about the two feeding miracles. You see that there? He says, how many baskets full of leftover pieces were there when I fed the 5,000? And they know the answer. They say there were 12. And then in verse 20, they know the answer again. How many baskets of leftover pieces when I fed the 4,000? And they say there were seven. And yet they haven't drawn the clear conclusion about Jesus. They've already forgotten. They've forgotten the significance of what he has done for them moments prior. And here they are worried about forgetting one loaf of bread in the boat. You see the significance of that. They're worried about forgetting a loaf of bread when they have the loaf creator with them. They're worried about forgetting the bread when they have the one with them who can multiply food as much as he wants. They have the sustainer. They have the bread of life himself in the boat. And they're muttering about missing a meal. How forgetful they are. How dull they are. How hard of hearing and hard of seeing and hard of heart they are. They're a lot like us. They just can't see Jesus clearly and appreciate him with joy because they are so fast to forget how he has cared for them miraculously in the past. We tend to do the same, don't we? And it muddles our understanding of Jesus. 
Our understanding of his love and of his kindness and of his concern for every one of us. Really, Jesus has provided for us in a way that is just as miraculous as how he provided for the thousands back then. Listen, Jesus has given us all that we need. Jesus has given us himself. He's given us, as he tells us elsewhere, himself as living water. He's given us himself as the bread of life. Without him, we will, with him, we will never be hungry again. He's given us his very body and blood. He's given us all we need for faith and life and hope and godliness. And when we struggle or experience fear or loss or pain, we forget. We forget what he has done. We forget that he loves us. We forget that he is with us. We forget his love. We all have, to some degree, a case of spiritual amnesia. And Jesus is here to wake us up. So the question becomes, how do we deal with our muddled understanding? Some of us are muddled by unbelief in our understanding of Jesus. Some of us are muddled by pessimism in our understanding of Jesus. Some of us are muddled by sheer forgetfulness in our understanding of Jesus. So what is the cure for our condition? Whether it's any of those things or something else, what do we do? How can we remember? How can we see clearly? Well, again, the healing of the blind man provides us with the answer with the picture, with the visual reminder. You see, as we see Jesus heal this man in stages, we learn that he is willing to continue to help us when we are muddled in our understanding, when we see men like trees walking, and by his grace to bring us to full clarity, just like he did for that blind man in Bethsaida. So what do you need to do to reach the clarity in seeing Jesus that he asks of you? Well, we'll wrap up right now with this. First, you must admit that you oftentimes are muddled. You know, that's what this blind man does. Imagine having the gall to say that to Jesus. Actually, Jesus, that didn't work. Right? I see men as trees walking. Not real clear. I still need contacts at the very least. Right? He has the courage He has the willingness to admit that his problem is not yet fully resolved, which is exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be honest enough with yourself that you can admit that oftentimes the way you view Jesus is muddled by some of the things we've talked about or by something else? That's the first step. The second step is to trust then that Jesus will bring you by his grace to full Clarity. He will lay his hands on you again, just as he did for this man. Open your eyes and help you to see everything clearly. Jesus will not give up on us. He will not leave our understanding muddled. No, he brings us full healing, full sight, clarity of spiritual vision by his grace. The great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes his comments on this story with this paragraph, and I want to conclude the sermon by reading it. So listen to this as we finish this morning. Here's what Lloyd-Jones writes. The Christian position is a clear position. We are not meant to be left in a state of doubt and misgiving. 
of uncertainty and unhappiness. Do you believe that the Son of God came from heaven and lived and did all he did on earth? That he died on a cross and was buried and rose again? That he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit? Do you believe he did all of that in order to leave us in a state of confusion? It is impossible. He came that we might see clearly. That we might know God. He came to give eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you were unhappy about yourself as a result of this examination, come to him. Wait upon him. Hold on to him and ask him to clear your sight. He is pledged to do it. He will do it. And you will not any longer be an uncertain Christian, both seeing and not seeing. You will be able to say, I see. I see in him all I need and more. And I know that I belong to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love with which you have loved us in the gospel. You sent Jesus to become a man, to enter into our story and our world and to clear up our lack of vision regarding who you are and your character. When we look at Jesus, we understand who you are, God. And yet so often in life, even if we've trusted in him by faith, even if we profess to be Christian, so often in our lives, God, we again get muddled, whether by unbelief or by pessimism or by forgetfulness. We're so much like the disciples. And so, God, we ask this morning, that you would help us to gain, again, by your grace, the clarity that we need to be amazed, to be wondered, to be overjoyed at the vision of the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Will you do that for us this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.